was much, much more kind than I thought he was going to be, and so it's a great start already. I'm really thankful for that. Um, as he said, uh, my name is Devin. Um, I pastor Long Ridge Baptist Church, which is horribly misnamed because we're in Owenton, Kentucky, and we have no ridge anywhere close to us, and the only thing that is long, according to the congregation, are my sermons. So there's nothing there that's a long ridge at all, but that's the title of the church. That's the name of it. That's what we go with. Um, my church is in a small rural community. Uh, lots of uh, retired farmers and business people come to my church, and um, they, are, uh, they are a hoot, if nothing else. Um, we met. I, I'm, I'm honored that you remember when we met, because I had wrote down to say that I don't remember the year we met. <laughs> So I'm thankful that you do. Um, me and Matt became quick friends, and he has always been an encouragement to me, and I hope that I have been to him. And uh, It's no small thing to share your pulpit. I've learned that, uh, having a pulpit of my own. And so anytime I get to go to another church and preach, I'm thankful for that. So thank you for having me here. Thank you for trusting me with your pulpit. Um, it is an honor. We're going to be looking at the text of 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 4, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10. One of the most substantial things, perhaps, about my coming here is that, uh, or my knowing Matt, is that Matt did not know the same Devin that stands before you. And he made mention of that as I walked in the door this morning. Uh, Back in 2010, when I married my wife, I was about 20 pounds overweight. And shortly thereafter, marrying her, I became an easily 50-plus pounds overweight, and on and on and on. Um, I was a much bigger guy. I, um, I was, man, my wife was cooking. I was eating. Things were delicious and good. Uh, we were newly married. There was no boundaries. There was no need for uh, discipline. And so I deprived myself of nothing I wanted and ate everything in sight. Um, now... I am between 5'6 and 5'11, depending on which convenience store you're leaving. And in the year of about, some of you will get that later, um, in the year of about 2012, I was about 210 pounds. And so for my stature, that is big. That's bigger than I should be. And so I had to begin to think about employing something that I had never really used before. And that is discipline. Discipline, And that is what we're going to discuss this morning. And so let's read our text together. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, right away, you can see some things in the text 
that I want to point out. There's some obvious things. The first is that Paul is writing to Timothy and tells him he needs to be pointing some things out. There's some things in the in, in his church that he needs to be pointing out. We'll talk about those in just a second. Those come from the previous verses. It also says that Paul wants Timothy to avoid something. Paul wants Timothy to avoid worldly fables or old wives' tales, as it's sometimes translated, or as it's translated in the NAS, fables fit only for old women. Now, I almost titled this message, How Not to Be an Old Woman. That doesn't go over well in a lot of churches, and so I title it Godliness and Discipline. How Not to Be an Old Woman doesn't seem to strike at the heart of what it uh, is saying anyway. Another thing is that Paul wants Timothy to discipline himself. He wants the people of his church to be godly. Thus, he wants you to be godly. That's important. Oftentimes, we read the pastoral epistles. We read the letters in the latter half of the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament, excuse me, and we see Paul writing to uh, Timothy, particularly. And we think when we hear him writing about being a pastor that somehow we can separate ourselves. If you're not a pastor, you can separate yourself from that instruction. Well, what's the purpose of pastors? The purpose of pastors is to be an example for the flock. And so anything that Paul writes to Timothy to be or to do is therefore for us to be and to do as a flock, as a congregation, as a people who are supposed to follow the leadership of our pastor. I think it's also obvious by this instruction that godliness doesn't just happen. It takes work. You know, we often don't think about this uh, a lot, but the things that we want the most take the most effort. They take the most work. And we like to, um, we, we like to, we would like to think that we can get things easily without much effort, but it's not true. Paul wasn't singling out Timothy here as if he needed something we all don't need. He was particularly pointing out the idea that if you're going to become godly, that's something you want. It's going to take work. Godliness is about what you go after and what you avoid. So I told you earlier, he, tells him, he specifically tells him to avoid something but he also tells him to go after something. And uh, you need to have both of those sides of that same coin. If you're going to run from something, you are always running towards something. So if you're going to avoid something, you need to be coming after something. Also, I think it's pretty clear that eternal things to Paul are more important than temporal things. So those are just things that if you just read the text and you just... No study, nothing else, you just read those, I think those come clear out of the page. Now the context is that Timothy is a young pastor of a young church, uh, well, actually a young pastor of an old church, Um, and he is, some would say, in over his head in in some ways, except for the ordination of God, uh, his pastorate is defined by those who would come against him because he's young, he seems inexperienced. That's why Paul at one point writes to him, don't let them look down on your youth. And how can he keep from doing that? Well, be an example to the believers in speech and in conduct and in love and faith and purity. And so he is uh, facing um, odds that are against him. And so Paul writes to encourage him. 
and to be an example, but of course, example is not an end in and of itself. The Bible, including Timothy's instruction, again, I will say, is for you. Don't get caught up on the fact that this is a pastoral epistle. Don't get caught up on the fact that he's writing to a pastor. Everything we have from Scripture is for the church and it is for the believer, and so we can gain from that. Now, I want to talk to you about this word, discipline, okay? Now, just hearing the word, for some of you, make, make you just feel like it's burning a little bit inside. Discipline. It's not the one we like to use a lot, frankly. It comes from the word in Latin, dissere, and it means to learn. And all the words that come from that word are all having to do with learn. Disciplina, instruction, discipulus, pupil, or student. They all have to do with this idea of teaching and learning and being a student. If you're going to be a disciple, then you're going to have to be disciplined. They come from the same root word. It's the idea that you are the student, you are the instructor, and you are going to learn through this process. So, you're going to have to instruct your body when you physically have to start working out. If you discipline your body, how do you do that? Well, you're teaching your muscles. You're teaching your body how to survive on less food. and you're t- You work your muscles so that they adapt and expand and they grow. They learn to survive. And all of that is, is a process of teaching your body how to respond. And so this is what Paul is using in this word to describe training ourselves, teaching ourselves to be godly. Now, of course, only those who possess the Holy Spirit are able to do this. I don't mean to make this sound like that it is a uh, humanistic idea. This text is highly practical, and so it assumes something, and that is that you are possessed by the Holy Spirit and have been regenerate, regenerated, and now belong to Christ. Um, for some of you in this room, perhaps, you may hear this idea of disciplining yourself from godliness, and that may not be something you want at all. And why? Well, because maybe you're not a believer. You haven't been saved, and so the idea of disciplining yourself or pursuing godliness is, sounds horrible. And it would. This is for those who have been changed and have a new self that has been brought about by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. So the word here used by Paul comes from those things in Latin, but the, the, the root word here in Greek is gymnazo, which is, sounds a lot like the word gymnasium, doesn't it? And that's because that's where we get it. Gymnasium, that's where we get it. it the idea of discipline is to exercise vis- vigorously. And it's used in other places in Scripture. I'll uh, throw these references out. Uh, Hebrews 5.14 says that solid, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained. That word translated there, trained, is the same word. Gymnazu. It's trained vigorously, exercised visor, uh, vigorously. Uh, having trouble with that word for some reason. Hebrew 12.11 is the same idea. It says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained, there's that word again, by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Second Peter 2.14 talks about the opposite. Those who train themselves in sin. It says, Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained, there it is again, in greed, accursed children. 
You can train your soul to love the things of God and you can train your soul to hate them based on our practices and what we work at. You don't discipline yourself or discipline your children for the heck of it, right? But we discipline for a purpose, to bring about righteousness. And that is what is encouraged here. This is what we are to do. And I think it would be easy to identify discipline as one of the most absent things in our culture. Do you agree with this? We have uh, drive throughs Why? Because we don't want to wait that long. And as a matter of fact, if you're in a drive through and it takes a little longer than it should, you're pretty annoyed. I am. Why is it taking so long? This is a drive through It's supposed to be fast food, not slow food. Dumb dad joke or whatever. Nevertheless, if, if it's not fast enough, you're already upset. Uh, internet society, anything you want to know is at your fingertips with your phone. Uh, the internet is an amazing tool, uh, but it has made us less disciplined because we don't have to wait for anything. We don't have to find in a concordance or look up in a book things. We can find answers very, very fast. Um, psychology has become very prevalent in our culture, and so uh, we don't really have to be disciplined even in our personal lives, because a lot of the things that we would consider necessary have now been written off in popular psychology as mental disorders or uh, personality uh, flaws, things like that. Our apps help us communicate with people in other languages and immediately translate our writings into whatever language we want. Our country is regularly number one in the world for obesity, And even when you go to a department store now, uh, if you buy a video game system or if you go to Lowe's to buy a tool, uh, you can buy a warranty. And I have had it said to me so many times, when you buy that tool and you take it up there, you want the warranty? And I I never want it, but they always say, you know, if you buy this warranty, and if if you get angry and you beat it to death or you throw it out the window or it doesn't work, you just replace it. (laughs) that's easy. I don't have to be careful with it. I don't have to be nice to it. I don't have to like it. I don't have to be disciplined with my stuff. Just buy the warranty and fix it. When I was trying to lose weight about 55 pounds ago, I was looking for shortcuts because I'm a big loophole guy. I love loopholes. And so I uh, went to a health food store where they sold this pill for a liver cleanse. And I had people say, take this pill for the liver cleanse, and it's going to do you really good. you got to cleanse your liver in order to lose weight. I said, all right. So I went to the health food store, and the person there said, uh, you know, if, instead of buying this liver cleanse pill, you could just drink a lot of water in a day, and it would work the same way. And I said to her, why would I drink all that water when I could just take the pill? undisciplined, right? That's the mentality I had. Why go the extra mile? Why do the hard thing if the easy thing is available? But in the physical realm, we can buy the warranty. We can go through the drive-thru, we can search the internet, we can take the liver cleanse pill. But in the spiritual realm, the Bible doesn't give us an option as to whether we get to decide if we're going to be disciplined or not. Instead, it says this is a command. It doesn't give us an option. It's, em- it's emphatic. Discipline yourself, he says. Discipline yourself for the point of godliness. Here is an expositional note for you, okay? Within the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy, I think it's divided into three parts. 
And I think the three parts point out what is in our text this morning. The first part is 1 through 5. Second part is 6 through 10. And the third part is 11 through 16. And I think our text in the middle of it has the idea of a believer's security and believer's witness and example. So verses 1 through 5 has to do with the fact that some will fall away due to false teaching. And Paul says to teach them the truth about the gospel of grace. And so in verse 6, when he says, in pointing these things out, you will be a good servant, he's referring to the first five verses. Teach them the truth so that they will not fall away. They will understand the gospel of grace. They will not run after false teaching. So when he says to to Timothy to discipline himself, he says, disciplining yourself for godliness is how you secure your salvation and feel sure that you will not fall away. That's important. If you've ever struggled as a believer, had a crisis of faith, doubted your salvation, this is an example of one way you can fight that. How do you know you're not following false teaching? How do you know that you're saved? Well, if you are disciplined and you are pursuing godliness, then you will not be easily swept off your feet and follow false teaching. Then the last half, 11 through 16, deals with the idea of setting an example. Disciplining yourself for godliness is how you set an example. So in verse 12, he says, "...let no one look down on you, uh, your youthfulness." This is how you show yourself an example of those who believe. And in verse 15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. How are you going to be evident to all and set an example? You're going to be disciplined. So you can secure your own salvation and you can make it evident to everyone else and be an example all from verses 6 through 10 in being disciplined. It's that important. So here we go. I have four things for you this morning. Four things that I find in verses 6 through 10 that I think we can uh, write down and we can use to help ourselves as we pursue godliness in the idea of discipline. And here they are. I'll give you all four and then we'll work through one at a time. The first is we have to be constant in our diet. We have to be constant in our diet. Number two, we have to be courageous in our no. N-O. We have to be courageous in our no, or what we say no to. We have to be courageous in our no. Number three, we have to be confident in our aim. Number three, we have to be confident in our aim. And number four, we have to be clear in our motivation. We have to be clear in our motivation. Alright, so starting out, number one, verse six. We have to be constant in our diet. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourished. On what? The words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So... In trying to lose weight initially, uh, I would be intermittent. I would, uh, you know, I'd wake up, I'd skip breakfast, I'd have fast food for lunch, a couple candy bars in the afternoon, big hearty supper, and usually a bedtime snack that consisted of a soda, some chips, and some sort of candy bar before I hit the bed. When I decided I need to lose a little weight, I would still do all that, and then I'd work out about 15 minutes. Uh, I found I was not losing weight. 
Surprise. I know you're shocked. I can feel it. That doesn't work. But when I started trying to chip away at some of these things, started eating a little better, doing a little more exercise, I found it to be a little helpful. Run around the block and come home and eat ice cream. Stuff like that, you know, whatever, whatever works. But I found these things weren't working, right? When you're talking about the physical realm, these things, if you don't put a lot of effort in, you don't get a lot out. I wanted the results of hard work and discipline with a lifestyle that was undisciplined and an attitude of luxury. It doesn't work like that. It isn't until I radically decided I was going to go all out and do the hard work of disciplining myself that I actually started to see results. And here's the spiritual truth to that idea. You can't expect to go weeks without picking up your Bible or worshiping the Lord or praying, or attending uh, the, the service with your, with your fellow believers for edification and sanctification. You can't go without constant spiritual nourishment and then all of a sudden think that you can pick up your Bible one day and it's going to blow your mind and you're going to be transformed. It's not the way it works. That's why Paul's instruction is constantly nourished. Not nourished or have a good meal once in a while. Constantly nourished. That word's important. The only thing you will get out of church, for instance, is what you put into it throughout the week. And I'll tell you this. Inconsistency is the death blow to all of the good habits you want to have. Inconsistency is the death blow to all the good habits you want to have. If you want to know a person regularly, be around them. If you want to lose weight, exercise and eat healthy regularly. If you want to know God, be consistent in prayer and in His Word. So we have to be constant in our diet. Number two, we have to be courageous in our no. Verse 7 says, But have nothing to do. This is in Greek, it's emphatic, and it's the word reject in all caps. But have nothing to do. Reject worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Paul says to Timothy, don't be an old woman. Now, this is not to insult all women, and Paul is not in any way a a sexist. What he is saying is, in, in this time, women were not esteemed like they are in our time and in our country. And so they would often be illiterate and they would be uneducated. And all the old women would know to do would be to pass around the gossip and fairy tales and myths that they would hear and pick up along the way. And they would pass those back and forth to each other. And so Paul here is basically saying, uh, if you're passing around myths and, and they had plenty of them. They had genealogies and they had uh, ideas about... Uh, uh, things that would happen, and, and you can read about those in uh, the apocryphal books of the Bible. But a lot of those things would be passed around by the ones who were uneducated and didn't know the truth, that didn't know the Word. And so he says, if you're passing those untrue things around, then you're no better than an uneducated, illiterate old woman who doesn't know any better. But if you know the truth, you're better than that. You're supposed to know more than that. You're supposed to know the Lord better than that. And therefore, you're supposed to be able to discern truth from error. So don't entertain those myths. Reject them all out. 
So be courageous in what you say no to. Be courageous in what you say no to. Paul is saying that anything contrary to the Word of God is not worth listening to. So, if you're here today, you can be a 12-year-old boy and be an old woman, according to Paul, if you're following silly myths instead of listening to the Word of truth. Paul says no. You hang on the words of faith. Now, this one is, is, be courageous in our no, is interesting to me because a lot of times people get worried, I think, about becoming little Pharisees when they say no to something. They're, they're afraid of what saying no to something may, look, may make them look like. And um, that, that can be true. If you start to put a boundary line upon other people's lives and what they should be saying no to, you have become a Pharisee. Because the instruction here is from Paul to Timothy to reject these myths is from a, a, a father figure for Timothy and a pastor, right? But when, if Timothy was to start going around and telling everybody else how they should, uh, what their conscience was able to withstand and, and what they were able to do or not do without sinning, well, that, that might be a problem. Now, the Scripture is clear. The truth of God's Word is clear. There are things Christians cannot be a part of. Right? There's things we have to say no to. There's things that when you become a believer, you no longer get to participate in. That's one of the sacrifices we make. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. There's an element to the Christian life that we forsake a lot of the things other people get to do. Some godly people can watch TV. Some people, to pursue godliness, need to throw their TV out. There's an example of a courageous no. Some people need to courageously say, no, I'm done with this. Some people are able to filter and take in and discipline themselves where it's not consuming their lives and they're able to do it. So we have to be careful in how we speak to one another and how we think about one another and and really uh, think about the idea of the, the log and the twig in the eye, right? We are to be disciplining ourselves, not disciplining our neighbor. That's not what Paul calls for here. Our relationship with the Lord is to be disciplining ourselves. So we aren't trying to tell other people to outwardly conform to some uh, idea or standard that we have in our head, but rather reminding them of Christ's promises and hopes of seeing inward conformity to Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see. As Paul Washer says, you can take a man and you can make sure he quits drinking and make sure he quits smoking and make sure he quits cheating on his wife and you will make him a really moral person to go straight to hell. It's only inward change and inward conformity to Christ that will let you stand before the Lord and He will say, I do know you, instead of, I never knew you. So, number three. And I'll say this. We can't run from something. We can't say no to something without saying yes to something. We can't run away from something without running toward something. It is not enough to define your life by what you don't do. That's not what believers do, that's not what the Word of God says. So, you can't run from something without running towards something. You cannot define your life by what you don't do. So, number three is we have to be confident in our aim. If you're courageous in what you say no to, you should be confident in what you're saying yes to and what you're aiming at. Verse 7 through 9 of our text says, Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for all women. On the other hand, so have nothing to do with those, but on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. So, for me, I started disciplining myself to eat healthy and work out really intensely. And once I, once I had completed the first day, I thought, this is great. But after a week, I was tired, hungry, and depressed. No results. One weekend, nothing. But I kept at it. I kept watching my diet. I kept working out really hard. I noticed after the first month, things were a little different. Two months, better. Six months, better. And you know, I never woke up one day and, and thought, I've arrived. Here it is. Look at this. It was just a daily habit, a weekly habit that eventually allowed me to lose about 55 pounds. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. This is why I use this analogy, because Paul uses this analogy. He says bodily discipline is very similar to spiritual discipline because it hurts, it's tiring, it'll make you depressed, it'll make you angry, you have to fight for it, and you won't see results every day. But one day, the sum of a million little decisions, you realize that you are achieving goals and getting further than you thought you would. And I will tell you this, there's, um, people didn't always understand. Uh, people, you know, I'd go out to eat with somebody, they didn't understand why I was eating healthy, it bothered them. You know? And I often, in those moments, would think, if you're going to discipline yourself spiritually and take this seriously, you're often going to be in situations where you choose the healthy diet, and there's people that say, I don't understand. I can't go down there with you, I don't like that. And it might even be offensive. I sat down with somebody one time and I ordered a salad. I don't like salad, but you know, when you're trying to lose weight, you eat whatever you need to be. And I ate a salad, and the person I was with was offended by that salad. <laughs> what the heck are you eating? A salad? I said, yeah. Spiritual discipline is very similar. Often, you're disciplining yourself spiritually. You decide to be courageous and you know you have an aim for something you want. It might be offensive to those who you are around. That's why you have to be confident in your aim. You have to know what it is you're after. Godliness is what is prescribed by God, and you need to be unwavering until we achieve that. Of course, we won't fully achieve it until glorification, but we know that pursuing it is what is asked of us. And you may then fight the spiritual war, which is the war of, does it really matter if I skip my Bible reading for today? Does it really matter if I miss this one thing? If I, if, I, if I didn't pray much about this? The spiritual war that comes upon you. One day won't hurt anything, you'll say. Or maybe if it's just the justification, the little goal I had to read my Bible once daily is silly. It's not enough. It's not going to do anything. It's not like real study. Those excuses have to go. That's the spiritual warfare. If you take this seriously, the spiritual warfare won't be that your car crashes and you have to get out of it before it explodes and you're crawling down the road and, and uh, Satan throws fiery darts at you. If it was that clear and evident, we'd probably be more successful. Spiritual warfare comes when it makes you doubt that the right thing you're supposed to be doing is not going to be enough. The thing that you want to do that doesn't seem fulfilling is what you should be doing and and will produce righteousness, godliness. 
Every little decision matters. I'm going to give you a couple things that uh, John MacArthur, when he preached this text, says. And I, I just like them, and so I'm, just going to, I'm not going to explain them. I'm just going to give you the headline. And so if you want to write it down, you can. But here's a very practical ways of being disciplined, according to John MacArthur. And the first is, begin with small things. Learn to discipline yourself in the small things. Number two, clean your environment. And these are highly practical, by the way. These are not uh, characteristics of God. Uh, These are just highly practical things that are little steps toward being a more disciplined person. Number two is clean your environment. Number three is make a schedule. Whether it's an absolute hard and fast schedule or whether it's a little more fluid, just have an idea of what your schedule looks like. Number four, wean yourself off of being entertained. We live in a culture where we're always searching for entertainment and we always want more, more, more entertainment and we think if we're not being entertained, what do we do? Immediately, whip it out. Entertainment, right? Go back to it. If we wean ourselves off that, we'll find it's easier to be disciplined. Be on time. That's always convicting when I read that and so I don't want to talk about it anymore. Uh, I have a hard time with being on time. I don't know why. Again, I don't want to talk about it. Um, Next is, even in the little things, keep your word. Even in the little things, keep your word. Always do the hardest task first. Always do the hardest task first. Finish what you start. Finish what you start. Practice self-denial And volunteer for tasks. Disciplined people are much more able to volunteer for things than those who aren't. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed that, but it is a true truism of our world. And I would add this to that list. This is not John MacArthur's, but I would add this to the list, and I think it fits with our text. Uh, and that is, make a commitment to yourself that your head won't hit the pillow at night if you haven't spent time with your Lord. If He's your Lord and Master and you know Jesus Christ personally, there should be no reason you have not spent time with Him before your head hits the pillow every single night. Or maybe for you it's a morning time thing. My feet won't hit the floor in the morning until I have heard from God and His Word. Until I have talked with Him. You may be tired. You may be grumpy. You may be depressed. And it may be difficult. But disciplining yourself for godliness and refusing to compromise will pay off C.S. Lewis says one of my favorite quotes, It's funny how day by day nothing changes, but when we look back, everything is different. Isn't that the truth? Some of you here are, are older than me, and you, you know, as I already know, so I know you know, when you look back, man, things are different. It didn't feel like major changes along the way, most of them. But now when you look back, everything's different. Day by day, nothing changes, but when you look back, everything is different. We train hard physically, but it is only a little profitable. One day we'll lose our bodies, and spiritual training lasts forever. Puritan Thomas Brooks says this, The weight of all eternity hangs upon the thin wire of time. Let us use our time in ways that are profitable, not only in this life, but will best prepare us for eternity as well. Verse 9 is written, So we will not toss out what is just said. Paul 
remind us it's a trustworthy statement to listen to this. It deserves full acceptance from you, Timothy. And thus, by implication, it deserves full acceptance from us. And then verse 10, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And that is where we have number four. We have to be clear in our motivation. Now this is a very interesting verse. It sort of sounds like Paul's a universalist, because he says Savior of all men, especially those who believe. So we don't really know exactly what he's talking about, but here's what I believe he's saying here. Um, This is the motivation for why we discipline ourselves, Um, is that we have fixed our hope not on this life and not on the physical realm, but on the spiritual aspects of life and on eternity. So what is our motivation that we're supposed to be clear? What's the clear motivation behind disciplining yourself for godliness? That eternity is fixed within the heart. Our hope is on the living God, who is the Savior of all men. So what does he mean by Savior of all men? Well, the word here for Savior is soter. It can mean deliverer or preserver, as well as Savior. It's often translated Savior here, but it could also be deliverer or preserver. And this clears it up a bit, because we know that Jesus says most will reject him and spend eternity in hell. Most will, is what Jesus' words are. So we know that he's not ultimately saving every person who's ever lived because Jesus says, not going to happen. They won't trust me. They won't believe in me and they won't ultimately be saved. But in one sense, Jesus is a preserver of the world. It's this, he is the savior of the world and for what it should be getting. If it wasn't for Jesus' atoning work on the, on the cross, making us the salt of the earth, there would be no reason to preserve the earth any longer. And so the preservation of a sinful world and a sinful system is what we often call common grace. That everybody gets good things whether they're Christian or not. Non-Christians get to have grandchildren same as Christians. Common grace, right? We all get to, we all get to eat good food, saved or not. Common grace. So, if we see this especially here, especially of the believers, can also be translated, that is to say, which means that Jesus is the preserver of the world. That is to say, those who believe. Kind of clears that whole text up a little bit, doesn't it? He's preserving the world, and He's especially preserving those who believe. This is how He's the Savior of all men. It takes working hard, making time, not getting to do other things, depriving yourself of pleasure, watching others indulge in their pleasure. It takes motivation, goals, in order to be disciplined. But it's worth it, according to Paul, because it's, it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I'll end with this been plenty of gospel references, but I always like to make sure to ask the question once again at the end of every sermon, what does this have to do with Jesus? And I think it's pretty clear, but let me just say it out loud. Jesus was the example of discipline. Who else could look at delicious food after 40 days of fasting and say to Satan that he will live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? It takes discipline. When Jesus was tempted, he, he was showed his ability to stand fast. He, he showed his discipline not to cave the temptation, but more than that, he lived the perfect life all the way to the end. 
There's an aspect of that that involves discipline. Without discipline, He would not have been the perfect sacrifice. We discipline ourselves to be like Him, and He disciplined Himself to be perfect to take our place. So I say this, if you don't know Jesus today, and all this seems a little foreign to you, the idea of godliness, the idea of of, uh, pursuing Christ, and I invite you to go before the Lord, go before God, to take this to Him, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you will repent and trust in Him, He will save you. If you have done that today, then I challenge yourself. If you are a repentant believer here today, then I challenge you to discipline yourself for godliness. Be constant in your diet. Courageous in what you say no to. Confident in your aim and clear in your motivation. Let me pray with you. Father, I just pray for those here listening that You would be with them. That You would give us, Lord... uh, the strength, the ability, the willing heart, and the love for Christ that would push us to be disciplined for the sake of godliness. Lord, physically, discipline only lasts till we die. Spiritually, Discipline will have benefits for all eternity. I pray now that as we gaze upon Christ and we find our joy and our satisfaction in Him, You would make us people who pursue godliness. who love You above all things. Thank You for Your Word and for this time together. We pray that You would do Your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.